Hello everyone and welcome to Sigma Sports Presents Matt Stevens Unplugged and this is the George Hincapie episode. Now, what can I tell you about George? Well, he's an American man from Queens, New York, which is in the United States of America. He was a professional bike rider for 18 years, riding for some of the biggest teams in the world, and is considered by those who rode with him to be the best teammate of all time, 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 time. But he had a complex career as he labels it. We speak all about the highs and lows of that, including the years that were stricken from his record when he admitted to doping. And we also talk about how racing has changed since he was a pro and how there's not really such a thing as a feed zone anymore. Plus, we get a voice note from a chap called Mark on the Isle of Man, which leaves George shaking. So grab your favorite soda or roots beer, potato chips, and beef jerky. That's right, they're American snacks for an American guest who we recorded from across the big pond in America, USA. This is the George Hincapie episode. You know it's that time again. Podcast. George Hincapie had an incredible career in the pro peloton, spanning from 1994 to 2012. As a super domestique, uh, that's one word, uh, there's no hyphen, uh, he helped deliver Tour de France victories to three different teammates. However, it wasn't all done cleanly, and George admitted to doping during a portion of his career, which meant that his Palmares in Lance Armstrong's era of dominance was struck from the record. George has since helped bring about important changes to help clean up our sport and is an outspoken advocate of clean cycling. In our chat, I was keen to hear how things are going with his hotel business, find out about his wine and art collection, and get the deets, that's what the Americans uh, say for details, on how he reluctantly fell for a stray dog his daughter brought home one day. Oh, and our mate Cav had a voice message for George too. Check it out. Um, George Hincapi, welcome to Matt Stevens Unplugged. Uh, how are you, mate? Thanks for having me, Matt. I'm doing well, doing well, thank you. Good stuff. Well, I, I think it's worth explaining. Um, we started the pod technically at 14.01 British time, that's 9.01 um, New York time. Um, but we've had a few technical issues. Um, and we also, we've come, we've happened upon an idea for a new video cast or ne- definitely not a podcast, a video about a tour of, of racist scars, um, haven't we, George? <laughs> yes, we have. I thought that was an awesome idea. Um, before we get into the, um, the, the depths and of, of this pod, I'm going to, I'm just going to go straight off the bat. Um, what's, what's the, what's, the, what's the biggest story? What's, what's the biggest scar you have on your body? Um, because I really like the idea of exploring it. I know it might obviously would have been painful. What's the one that you, if you've got a scar or a slight deformation of your body that you basically, <laughs> when you're chatting to people, you say, Hey, Hey man, touch this touch this <laughs> just um, like, and, then, and then do you know what i mean like a broken collarbone yeah, or yeah. something <laughs> yeah that one's easy that i don't know if everybody or if anybody remembers but 2006 paris roubaix i was in the breakaway um with about 30k to go i had three teammates two teammates with me so three of us total and my fork snapped in half <laughs> ah. um so you usually when uh, you crash like that and especially in a big race like that you get up and go but this this particular crash it was one of those where you're like, oh, shit. I, oh, are we allowed to curse on the show? Uh, yeah, anyway, it's fine. I, you can bleep me out if you want to. But anyway, I, was, I, was, I hit the ground. I thought there's no chance I can get up from this because it was you know, pretty severe separated shoulder. Ooh. And uh, yeah, that's my – and I still have that huge bump when the shoulder healed, the scar tissue uh, healed underneath it. So I have a big bump in my shoulder. And it's, that's kind of like my, my good war story that I use uh, whenever I don't have a shirt on in the pool or at the beach. 
<laughs> yeah, because cyclist bodies, especially cyclists, have been around a little bit. And let's be honest, you come up to your 50 or 30, mate, so you know, you've been around a bit. Uh, they're interesting places, aren't they? Weird tans, um, rib cages. Uh, nowadays with me, a <laughs> tiny, a tiny little bit of a beer belly emerging, you know, and, and that's that's life. Um, and then loads of weird scars. So, did you? Yeah. Um, so, whereabouts in Paribay did that happen? What particular sector was that? Oh man, you kind of going deep there. I don't. Yeah. It was. It was. It was thirty k to go. It was. Uh, um, I don't remember the particular name, but it was a big. It was a big sector. Um, I'd have to look it up, and I'm sure it'd be was. easy to find. But um, yeah, I can't remember the exact name. It, it wasn't. It wasn't the Carrefour de Larbe, was it? No, it wasn't that one. No, it wasn't. Okay, because that's maybe that's like 20k to go, isn't it? That one. Uh, yeah, roughly. and it might have been. It might have even been. It was. It was around 50 or less to go. Okay, it might have not have exactly been 30k. No worries. Anyway, I mean, we went off the beaten track a little bit there, but I just thought as we were on it, I mean, um, and, and again, we've got an idea for a, for some sort of future video bit of content, which I think would go down quite well. Um, first off the bat, um, George, can you tell us, just for our, our listeners, uh, firstly, tell us where in the world you are, although I think I've already alluded to that, and also just describe what you can see immediately around you in the room that you're in, so we can set a really nice context. <laughs> That's actually uh, funny. Well, I'm in, I'm in Greenville, South Carolina, so the east coast of the United States um, yeah. in my home. Uh, it's, it's like you said, it's 9.15 a.m. Just dropped my son off at school. And I'm in my basement, which I actually just posted a little video on uh, my Instagram saying that, you know, to, to asking you to be nice to me on this podcast. And I shouted you out. But I'm in my basement, my sort of man cave where I have a couple uh, special bikes that I've kept over the years. I have a a uh, shit ton of wine and a couple uh, cool paintings. Um, oh, what else is here? Just a little lounge area. My gym is right next to this and my uh, the theater on the other side. So, yep, in the basement. <laughs> Very cool, mate. Is that where you do the move from as well? Um, depends. Yeah, at, at times I do it here or I'm in my office in downtown Greenville. Um, and obviously when we're during the tour, we're all together in Aspen. Sure. Okay. Um, and I, I like wine. Um, I like bikes. I like paintings. Uh, what bikes have you decided to keep? I mean, you had a ridiculously long career, George. So what bikes have survived and what bikes do you have down there? So it's just kind of a random uh, melange of bikes. One is, I'm looking at it right now, it's a, um, a 2009 or 10 BMC time machine. And oh, I don't yeah. know if you remember this bike, but this is one of the, the coolest Obviously, now they're a whole different level, but at the time, this was one of the most sort of uh, groundbreaking technology bikes that came out. Um, and I, used, I hated, I hated training on time trial bikes; it was so uncomfortable. Um, so I kind of, but I love the way this bike looks, and I, I put it up on the wall just as a reminder of how much I suffered, and <laughs> you know how cool this bike looks. It's just a really, really cool uh, bike for the for the time. The technology was next level, so. I have that one up. I have my the bike that I rode on the Champs Elysees that um, Andy Reese, uh, rest in peace, uh, had it painted black and gold for me, and it says um, "Gentleman George" on it, uh, Lucky Seventeen. And it's funny they wanted me to ride that the whole Tour de France. And as you know, um, a lot of cyclists are very superstitious, so I said I'm, I yep. refuse to ride anything that says "Lucky" on it during the Tour de France. That's kind of a death wish. <laughs> yeah. So I said if I make it to the Champs on the last Tour of 2012, that I would I would ride it. So I rode it on the Champs Elysees. So I took it. They gave it to me on the Shams. It's got my number on it. It's got the SRM on it. Um, everything race ready. It's sitting here in between uh, 
a bunch of wine that's kind of, you know, on this pedestal. And then I have my two uh, custom Peyton uh, Pro National Championship bikes. One's a, a Trek from 1999, and then one's wow. a BMC from 2009, so 10 years apart. Um, and then I have a random uh, mountain bike frame that I did Cape Epic on, just to oh, show yeah. the diversity of my cycling skills. <laughs> um, but uh, that was also a fun, uh, a fun event that I did with Cadell Evans. Oh man, it sounds like we could, you could, we could do a deep, just like, um, like let's explore um, George's man cave. Um, yeah, just exactly. Like, it, it looks like you got lo- loads of different elements within it. Let's look at the history of the bikes, the wine. What wines do you have? Because uh, I know you've got your oh. hotel and your restaurant and stuff. So, it, did that is that linked to that, or is this per, your personal preserve of, of wine? Is this like your uh, a little bit of both? We have a yeah. we have a we have our own blend that's, that we call seventeen. Um, and, and it's called the Enzo blend that it's kind of a funny story. I went and did a wine tasting at pride mountain vineyards, uh, 10 years ago, right when I retired, I was always a big fan of the, that wine. Uh, it's right on the border of Sonoma and Napa on top of spring mountain. And it's just really a, sort of an iconic vineyard. And a, a friend of mine set up a like a private wine tasting with the, the wine, the head winemaker. And she showed up with um, a Hinkabi Sportswear t-shirt on. So I said, this is going to go really well. <laughs> and uh, I actually asked if they would be interested in doing a blend for my hotel at that time. I just invested in and they uh, they agreed they don't do that with anybody else. And we've been doing it for 10 years. So I have a bunch of that wine down here. Uh, we just started doing a Chardonnay with them as well. And then I have wines from all over the world as well that uh, I've been collecting for for a long time. Are you a person that buys wine at auction, George? I haven't dived that deep. No, uh, no but I've I've done a I've done some interesting uh, moves to get particular wines that I love, whether it's trading a bike or you know something silly. But um, yeah, I'm just always looking out for cool, interesting things that I can get for myself. Very nice, mate. And what? Um, last thing on before we move on, because I'm fascinated. I'd, again. Just reminding people, me and George can't see each other. This is a if if a podcast can be analog, this is an analog podcast. So we're having to use our, let our minds do the work. But already, mate, I've got a really good picture of what it's like um, where you are right now. So just to finish that off, the icing on the cake. What paintings have you got? So they're kind of, and I know actually, I just had a conversation with uh, with Cav that you guys are going to uh, Damon Hurst's show tomorrow, I believe. Yeah, we are. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So this is nothing like that. This is just sort of paintings that friends or, or people have made for me of, of cycling stuff or of myself. Um, so it's a little bit sort of, uh, I'd say, kind of weird because they're pictures of me, <laughs> but they're cool. I mean, there's like okay. one, a live painting of uh, my face in 2002 Roubaix, where it's a super muddy Roubaix that a, a friend of mine painted live and upside down. He's a very talented artist called Jared Emerson. He's a local guy. Yeah. Um, and then there's some stuff with me in national championship kit, but I have normal artworks upstairs. That's where I keep my artwork, but down here is just more of the cycling stuff. Yeah. I'd, yeah. Cause I, I'm, I, I don't obviously have anywhere near the stuff of, that, you, that you've got. I had a very relevant, very short career riding at the, at a good level, but um, yeah, my house is, there's a lot of stuff in the garage and, and that sounds a bit weird, but in the, in our downstairs bathroom, there's a lot of cycling stuff in there, Giro numbers, national champs jersey. I just kind of like to keep that separate. It's not that it's yeah, agreed. And and uh, yeah, my wife is the same. Like we have the cycling stuff downstairs and upstairs in the main part of the house, we have uh, 
We have no cycling stuff at all. Yeah, you wouldn't ordinarily know that I was a cyclist uh, if you just came in and just for a, for a coffee or something, unless you went to the loo. And um, again, yeah. some people might have a bit of a problem with that, but I think it's all personal taste, isn't it? But it's like cycling is what I, you know, both of us are completely and utterly immersed in that world. But I think to properly enjoy the world, it, it needs to be separate. Um, that's 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 how I operate, really. Anyway. Yeah, agreed. And it's it's funny if I bring. Uh, like you said, the same thing. Somebody comes in the house, there's nothing cycling in the main in the main part of the house. And then if you have a cyclist over and you bring them downstairs, you, the, the reaction is is uh, quite funny because they're like, oh my goodness. It's like, a, you know, something that is very unique to the cycling world and uh, something that you just can't really see anywhere else. Yeah, totally. I don't remember going to, um, we did the cafe ride thing with Fabian Cancellara and um, we went to his basement and that was quite amazing. He had wine in there as well, lots of wine, but just loads of shoes. Now I ended up wearing some of his shoes. For some reason, I'd forgotten my shoes. Ridiculous. But yeah, but it is cool when you go into the cyclist world, that's where it's, because there's a load of retro stuff in there as well. It's And it can be a little bit disorganized and a bit chaotic, but I love that chaos. And I sometimes find old stuff that I've not seen for years. I've, I have about eight or nine boxes of stuff from the 90s, 80s as well. Oh, wow. And, and then you just dig stuff out. And um yeah, I've, I think I might do a series of little videos actually on old stuff that I've found that's completely um, unusable now, but it's just really, really interesting. Anyway, but uh, yeah, cool. oh, oh, a bit, a little bit of housekeeping, uh, George. Is the dog okay? Because I know you did an episode of the Move recently where the dog escaped and you arrived, <laughs> you arrived on the podcast on the video, um, oh, a little man. bit flustered and the worst for wear, disheveled. Yes. <laughs> Um, the dog is fine. It's a funny story. Uh, three days before Christmas, um, my wife and I are in bed. It's about 11 o'clock and we get a call from our 17 year old daughter. And like, okay, she, she should be home right now, but this isn't good. Why is she calling so late? And she's like, uh, my, my, my wife is a massive dog lover, animal lover, uh, for that matter. And she's like, mom, I found a dog and I, it's in the car and bringing it home. And I said, if you bring that thing home, you are going to be punished. <laughs> For a week, don't bring it. We don't need another dog. Like, no way. And I, so I just didn't want, like, the the sort of the stress of having another dog, especially right before Christmas. Anyway, of course, nobody listens to me in the house. They bring the dog home. Um, they showered. I was all mad. And it's just, just it, it turns out it's, like, the best dog ever. It's, like, a sort of a, a, a German Shepherd, uh, primarily German Shepherd mix. And she's she's adorable. She's, like, super sweet loyal and she's like i love her now she's become my dog but that day um i'm packing up to go for to a trip to new york so i got my whole schedule plan i'm gonna pack from nine to ten get on this podcast from 10 to 11 go straight to the airport and make my flight well about 9 45 i get a text message from a, 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 a person i know and he's like oh, my crew just saw your dog down the street like a kilometer away i'm like shit oh, no. <laughs> so, so I spent the next 40 minutes looking for her and, and the thing came back on its own, but uh, it was just kind of like one of those things I did not need at that moment. Yeah. Okay. Well, she's good fine. News. Thankfully yeah, she's fine and she's here. That That's good. We don't, we don't have a dog, but we, my wife has had dog dogs previously and we are looking at getting one at the moment. I just, uh, and I'm getting more and more keen on the idea, but I just, yeah. Um, we, I think in about a year's time, if we potted again, yeah. uh, there'd be a, a little, an, an extra little heartbeat knocking around the house, mate, knocking around the house. But uh, yeah, that's great. so, what, so George, I think oh, I want to start at the beginning, and, and then, I, and then I want to start in the middle, in relation to your into your career, because it's been a long, a long, long career, and but cycling is pretty much all that you've done. Um, and I, I didn't quite realise, I know a lot about you, and we we have raced a little bit together, actually. 
Um, but how, how do you look back on your career now? And do you have time to reflect? Because quite clearly with your business interests, um, with the move and with family life, um, with the business, not, not just Hincapi um, cycling clothing, but with the hotel as well, you're clearly a really busy man. Uh, and, and a few moments ago, we were talking about little bits from your history, just those little bits of nostalgia um, in your in your in your basement. But do you often have time to reflect on your on your career, mate? Um, I do. I don't dwell on it. Um, you know, I, you know, I, we all know um, it was it was a it was a sort of complex yeah. <laughs> career, and and uh, a lot of stuff went on. Uh, although I don't, I don't have like sort of any negative thoughts to it. Um, there was some tough times. There was some really good times and there was, there was things that I was part of that I'm super proud of. Um, so in that sense, I'm very grateful for the fact that I had a 19 year career. Um, I met some of the best personalities in cycling in cycling. I mean, obviously Lance, Cadell Evans, Mark Cavendish, Alberto Condor. I wrote for all of them. Uh, yeah. I helped them, helped them win t- stages in the Tour de France. I helped them win the Tour de France. Um, those are things that I wouldn't trade for anything, no matter what, you know, what happened, uh, what went down and what went on afterwards. Um, the, the, and and they're, they're friendships that I've made for life. So in that sense, I'm very appreciative of, of being put in that position and also just meeting um, everybody else in the, in the Peloton. As you know, it's just such a diverse group of people, a lot of them that I still keep in touch with um, and a lot of connections that I've made that I've, I'm able to sort of rely on for the for the rest of my life whether it's in businesses or in personal situations uh, just relationships that um to me is the most valuable thing that i i could have ever imagined getting from my career yeah and you know you you, you, you alluded to the difficult times and what i want to do is it's not because i want to brush that to one side and um it's just what i'm interested in if you don't mind me asking george isn't some we know every your career has been exceptionally well documented um, the the document, the the announcement that you made or the admission you made in 2012, um, looking back, and which meant that nearly three years of your career were erased because of the admissions that you made. But my question is, that's already out there in the open and it's been discussed ad infinitum. But my, my question to you, George, is how in 2012, after finishing your final tour, on the bike that you're just talking about for that final day, um, you know, Bradley Wiggins went on to win that tour, but, but you were allowed to lead on to the Champs-Élysées. Um, but then after that, when, when, you, when you made that admission, how did you cope with that, George? That's what I, from, on a personal level, because that must have been exceptionally difficult. How, how did you actually get your head around that and move on? Yeah, no, that was uh, probably one of the toughest times of my life, just because um, obviously I never really spoke about it publicly before that, but I was very open with people that were close to me. So in that sense, I wasn't worried about like the, the people that were in my world. They knew that I was part of sort of that dark era of cycling, but they also knew that I played a big part in, in, in being part of the change. I was one of the first riders that, you know, put my hand up to ride for the first clean teams, uh, quote unquote, like, you know, at the time it was Garmin or HTC where these teams were going to go above and beyond to, to do the things that were needed to clean up the sport. Yeah. And I was one of the first riders to say, okay, this, this is, this is a, something of the past. We need to change the sport. We need big riders to stand up for change in the sport. So for me, that was kind of very important that I was part of that movement. And although, of course, you know, being 
part of the sort of whatever you call it, the dark era of cycling. I wasn't proud of that, but it was at the time I didn't see any other way. Um, but yeah. I was more proud of being part of the change. And, and all those guys that were there, by the way, at the Tour de France in 2012, that sort of made me ride in front. I didn't want to do it. Um, Wiggins yeah, I was gonna, the, those I was, guys I was gonna, like, you got Yeah. Yeah. I, you, this is the last thing I wanted to do. I knew that stuff was coming out. I knew it. Yeah. And I'm like, guys, you know, so they're like, you're going up there because I feel like they had uh, respect for my career, for what I did to help change the sport. And, and uh, they didn't, I'm not going to say they didn't care. Of course they cared because obviously at that point, the sport was much cleaner, cleaner than it was back then. Um, but they sort of made me do it. And in a way, I wasn't going to say, okay, I'm not going to do it. But they were like, you got to do it, George. And it just meant a lot. Um, yeah. It was just, of course, you know, you had some people that probably didn't want me to do that, aka Chris Horner following me through the the finish line that uh, on the first time around, which, you know, whatever, everybody's got their own opinions. But yeah. um, it was a big honor that those guys made me do that. I think I think that's something that you don't we don't often mm-hmm. talk about. We talk about the vitriol that's uh, pointed at certain people. Lance is one of them. You know, still gets a lot a, a lot of heat. Um, we we, we tend when I say we, I mean the cycling community as a whole. We tend to choose the people that we treat as gods, correct, Pantani, yes. and, and we choose the people that we wish to vilify. And that everybody has their own choice. But I think what's interesting about the peloton, as it's shifted and changed, and obviously. Um, you were U.S. Postal from 97 uh, through 2004, then Discovery. And then the change for you, I guess, was was uh, joining Team Columbia HTC when you were with CAV, then BMC, then, and, and then you retired. And there were a lot of changes that went on, in, enormous changes year on year. There were still people being found out. Of course, there were, but the, the culture was shifting. And in 2012, there would have been riders in the peloton who, who wouldn't have liked you. But there's a lot of riders that, that would, and that's this disconnect that we – that people find problematic that like Cav uh, is, is, a, is a friend of yours, but a rider that uh, would have looked up to you and completely aware of your admissions and in, in, uh, of, you, of your admissions, you know, and, but yet he still realizes the value that you had. And that's something that isn't talked about very often. And I think people, it's hard and, and I'm not championing, you know, championing dopers or anything like that. It's just that there are people out there who've done things that they're not proud of within a culture that was so so toxic. If you didn't, if you didn't do something, you were you were vilified even more than actually taking stuff. And and as that as, as that kind of changes, uh, I think there was a general ex- a cultural acceptance that there are people who we you know we 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 can look up to a part of that old era that are actually affecting change as well. Would you say that's fair to say? Yeah, I would I would say that's fair to say. For for me in particular, my the only thing I could do at the time was. I knew this, all this stuff was going, was going to come out. And I knew that I was completely clean in those years. The only thing I could do was to do the, the job that I had done my whole career, with yeah. a, which was to help people win some of the biggest races in the world. And I needed to prove that to myself and to all of my family and to all of my peers, my teammates, uh, the rest of the Peloton that look, look, I'm not doing this anymore. I hadn't done it in a long time, but I'm still helping. Cav win some of the, you know, Milan San Remo, some stages of the Tour yeah. de France. I'm still helping yeah. Cadell Evans win the Tour de France, Contador. Um, and so I was still, I was known for being one of the best teammates in the world back then, but I was still known for being one of the best teammates in the world after the change occurred. And um, course, yeah. that's what I was most proud of. So, yeah. And I think the ride, the riders that are amongst that, that are in the Peloton, they saw that firsthand. And I, I feel like that's where the respect came from. So, yeah. Um, that was really the only thing that I could do. And that yeah. really helped me get through it. 
And I also think as well, you've got to, you've just got to be the person that you can be, you know, and, and, and also I think that when you look at, you step away from our sport and I'm going to, I'm going to stop talking about this in a minute, but I think it's really, really important, George, that when you step away from the sport and look at um, us as humans, as, as a species and, and our, our legal systems we have in place, most, most legal systems, and in the UK, it's the same, are all about, you know, forgiveness and rehabilitation and learning from mistakes and and that we have to accept that I, I think that is the, is the only way we can ever put things behind us and affect change if, if we are emphatic we will never learn and and I, and I really do think that, that a lot of good can come from bad things that have happened <laughs> just to just to Agreed, put this yeah. one to bed, uh, so but again I know a lot of people can have a problem with that um and that's that's what if, if you look at if you look at just the, the structure of justice systems, it's primarily fo- focused not on not punitive um, punishment, but rehabilitation and learning from mistakes. And that's the only way that we, I think, are going to progress. Anyway, that's to put to put that one to bed, mate. Agreed. I agree. Right, we're gonna we're gonna change tact um, in enormously uh, right now because uh, George, we've had. Um, a relatively new thing on on the podcast we'd been trialing out over the last few weeks is to um, we, we basically broke the budget um, at Sigma Sports here and we bought ourselves a burner phone. I think it cost about fifteen dollars. <laughs> okay, and we've got a WhatsApp number and we've asked people to uh, to ring in into that number and I, either leave us a voice memo, which I'm really fond of doing because I'm really slow at typing, um, or a note. And um, we've got a couple of messages through. So basically, it's Ask George. This is the, the second week. I don't think we've got a jingle for this bit, have we, now? No, we haven't. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, clearly that that was a bit of unprepared of me. We've got jingles for other bits, but we're going to um, – so, so, Niall, do you want to fire up the first – I think this is a voice note from somebody called Dan, and it's a question for you, George. Hey, George. Let's go. Uh, Dan here. Uh, I have a question – about the future of American cycling, uh, and especially around Grand Tours, and whether you feel um, the country has a Grand Tour GC contender on their hands, um, or if it's still looking a bit of a way off. Um, yeah, it'd be great to know who your picks are um, stateside when it comes to big names to watch uh, in the coming years in the, the likes of the Tour, Vuelta, Giro. Um, yeah, be great to get your steer on it. Cheers, Dan. So we're ta- we're talking uh, my my country. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. I mean, I would say this tour was particularly exciting with um, Nathan Paulus, Quinn Simmons, uh, Brandon yeah. McNulty, obviously Sepp Kuss. Uh, they these guys were in breakaway after breakaway. Uh, Magnus Sheffield is only nineteen years old. He's winning. He almost won the Tour of Denmark. Um, I'd say the future is super bright right now for American cycling. Um, Sepp Kuss is one of the best climbers in the world, as is Brandon McNulty. Obviously, right now, they're on teams that their sole role is to help their leaders. But these guys got uh, incredible potential. And um, I think we'll, we're going to see a lot of amazing uh, rides from them in the near future. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree. Um, and yeah, these guys are still pretty young. Sepp's getting slightly older now, but he is... Oh, he's been a guest of the podcast. Uh, what a lovely guy as well. I mean, these guys aren't just yeah, good great guys. They're, they're great. He's, su- he's got an infectious smile 
and and a lovely attitude to life, isn't he? It's just such a just. <laughs> and um, when I'm at a race, um, bumping into him is always a pleasure. And he's always got, even when he's, he's finished a, a tough mountainous stage or something. Seriously, he's there with his hand on his hips, and he's always there with an answer. Because you know, I'm I'm on, I'm on the ground at the tour and doing the interviews, and he's an absolute one of the most loveliest people to speak to, as well as being a ridiculously talented athlete. But yeah, I, I think. Just to echo your sentiment, I think Magnus Sheffield is arguably the biggest prospect, I think, now, isn't he, in terms of his age? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the amount of power this kid can produce is is really, really impressive. And he's just sort of getting into his stride right now. Right, okay. Um, this question is a text. Actually, the next question is a text. We've just got two more off this, but to keep it brief. Um, this is a text from Phil. Um was George ever given 100% free reign to focus on Paris Bay, or was the tour always in the back of his and his team, uh, team's mind? So that's from Phil. So uh, yeah, were you? Yeah, was it 100% on the on Roubaix, or was at the back of your mind, or uh, the tour, or did you manage to separate the two? Oh yeah, no, I was able to to focus 100% on Roubaix. Um, my the only issues was. You know, I kept running into these guys like Tom Boonen and Fabian Cancellara, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, there was, you know, I had some close calls, but um, I can't look back and say I, I could have done something different. I mean, those guys would just, just had that a little bit more than I did. Yeah, it was. When you look back at the results, I mean, you still had a ridiculous amount of top tens um, and podiums in, in that race. But, again, you were pretty much up against it. But what a beautiful, beautiful race. Um, we've got another voice note from somebody called Nils or Niels. Hello, this is Nils from the Netherlands. I would like to ask uh, George. He is the best uh, domestic rider of all time. Uh, is he also the best domestic guy in the domestic environment also? Does he uh, put the shirts away? Does he always um, put the sheets on the bed? Is he good at uh, tidying and making the dust uh, and also, uh, does he make the lunch for the whole family? <laughs> <laughs> oh my that God! I'm not, I'm not, I've not heard these. That sounds uh, like um, a mate of my uh, of Kenny Van Vlaming. But there you go. Uh, were you an all-round domestique? Certainly not. Certainly not. Um, as a, I'm, I'm better now. I play my part now. Um, help clean up after after meals and things. But back when I was a pro biker, I mean, as you know, it's just it's all about training and, and resting and trying to trying to rest as much as possible all the time so i really didn't do much of anything when i was racing but i'm a lot better now fair enough mate fair enough and finally um we've got one more question um somebody called mark from the isle of man georgie how are you <laughs> i know you're on matt's podcast i could sit and talk all night about how great you are like I love you. Like, I hope everyone listens who's listening, like, realizes, like, how incredible you are. Like, really, I always, whenever somebody asks me who's the best teammate I've ever had, it's, it's George Hincapie, you know? Like, as a teammate, you how you carried yourself on the bike, off the bike, was exemplary for all of us when we were young, you know? I know you were old, you were like, I don't know, 68 at the time, maybe, and still racing. And then even as a competitor, when you're on different teams, just the respect of everyone, the love of everyone, everyone you meet is just in awe of you. Like, I could go on and on. 
I could tell stories. Um, but I want to ask a question. It's actually something I don't know about you, you know. Like, I think from all that blowing sunshine up your ass, like, you know that <laughs> you're my hero. You're my hero, like. Um, and I just want to do your hero. It can be anybody on the bike, off the bike. Um, someone you raced with, not me, of course. I know that that's that's pretty standard, but uh, yeah, someone you you grew up watching, someone you raced with, someone who wasn't involved in cycling. Who's who was your hero? Um, wow, you're a lot of people's heroes, including mine. So who was yours? Wow, thank you wow. very much, Mark, Mark from the Isle of Man. Um, well, there we go. Well, what what a lovely message from from Cav there, mate. Um, yeah, I mean, what a great question as well. Absolutely. I mean, uh, well, first of all, I'm kind of blown away. I, I, I was uh, way too, what's well, way more than I ever expected. I actually just spoke to him this morning. Uh, what a great guy. And I'm hoping I can see him in Spain uh, in a couple of days Brilliant. as I'm heading over there tomorrow. But um, I'm kind of shaking by that, actually. It's <laughs> kind of funny. So I have a couple. I mean, obviously, I got a couple heroes, not just one, but one. Um, in terms of a rider, I'd say um, Miguel Indurain, just because he was always just so stoic and very, even though he had the time, he was, it was my first year of pro or first or second year of pro. And I kind of got to the honor of lining up with him to, to race against him. And I just remember he was always very polite and uh, very quiet, but it's, it's not one of those guys where, okay, I've won, you know, I've won Tour de France at the time four or five times and you need to stay out of my way. He was just always very gentle. He was like a, a very gentle, humble person and i just liked his style so i'd say he'd, he'd be one of them on the bike but in terms of just an overall life my my dad um who it happens to be his birthday today so happy birthday dad oh wow happy um, birthday dad yeah you know as a as a father now and seeing the commitment um he had to me uh in, in terms of my career bringing me to races every weekend and not having much money at all but i still had the best equipment and um for in terms of getting to the races and the, and the equipment that I had, like they dedicated their whole life to to making me as good of a cyclist as possible, and I see that as a dad now. Obviously, in a much different circumstance, but I mean, it's a uh, you know, it's a very selfless selfless task um, to take care of your kids and try to try to get them to do sports and try to get them to be committed and try to get them to to be good people. Um, so for sure, my dad is uh, uh, the the on top of that list. That's that's really that's that's really quite lovely and um, lovely, um, yeah, lovely words from Cav as well, mate. Which um, yeah, resonate when I when I heard that message, I, I was yeah, it's quite powerful, really. Just just underlying how much you you, meet, you meant to him, but yeah, Miguel Indurain, mate, and um, and and your dad. Um, somebody asked me this this very same question a while ago, and I can't remember who it was. Um, and my my cycling inspiration was was Greg Greg LeMond um, actually back mm -hmm. in the nineteen eighties when I was sixteen went to see the tour for the first time as a sixteen year old and he was there with Bernard Hino and then Kelly and, and Robert Miller Stephen Roach um, but then Miguel Indurain uh, and then my dad because my dad took me there and again did took time off work you know we didn't have a lot of money but he always made sure that I had nice stuff and but also made me feel like I'd earned it as well so. I'd get good stuff when he could see that I was hungry, and so I'd and I'd never I'd never forget what my dad gave me. Not just in terms of the physical things, um, but in terms of an like an ideology, an honest ideology of like a, and a work ethic, which absolutely is, is massively important. And then Miguel Indurain, 
I was I only raced against him him once as far as I'm aware, and it was a warm up race for the World Championships in Colombia. We actually went to uh, Colorado for some altitude training, and anyway, I was in this race. Lance was riding. I was in this race. Pantani was there, the Italian national team. I was riding for the in, the GB team, obviously, and I was in the line. I was on Bobby Julik's wheel. And uh, we were flat out, and it was on the Air Force base circuit that Argentine won on in in '86. And um, typical thing, my, my chain came off, and I was just changing from the little ring to the big ring. And so I swung out the line, so I didn't snap the elastic, and I was fiddling around my chain. And then I felt this hand on my back, you know, doing that thing that cyclists do, and on a club run or even in a bike race, even when the hammer's down, you know, some sometimes people will do that. So I managed to get my chain on, slotted back into the line. Then I looked behind me, and it was it was Big Mig. It was Injuran, just wow. to echo what you were saying. <laughs> yeah. And I was just 25-year-old nobody. I wasn't pro. You know, I was a good rider domestically, you know, trying to work my way up. He didn't need to do that, but he did. And um, so I just – I know it's this is your show, uh, George, but that Miguel Injuran bit, you know, I needed to just drop that in because that was – that was so powerful for me, and I and I I talk to people about that a lot when I, when I need to. But yeah, what a moment! And what, and what a ride. That's that's a that's a great story, and it actually kind of points out like the little things you can do as a as a cyclist. Um, where for us that would mean a lot, but if you go to like a local club right now, you drop a chain, <laughs> you're, you're, you're on your own. Like people are like, get out of the way, get out of the way. <laughs> it's kind of funny how those things change. But as a as a, you know, it's if it's your job, and that's your professional cyclist, um, those little things, uh, whether it's a month down the road or six months down the road, you'll remember them. And if it's, or those little things where you don't want to leave room for somebody you don't like, if it's that person that happened to give you that little push when you drop the chain, you'll give that little bit of room for them to pass. Yeah. Um, so that, that goes a long way. No, it, it certainly does. It certainly does. Now, I was just looking back through through your career, and and again, you'd need, I think, a series of podcasts to do your career anywhere near. We did just scratching the surface because you've achieved so much. You, you've ridden so many, so many of the classics, so many grand tours over that enormously long career. But I was drilling real far back, and I noticed, I, and I didn't realize this, that you rode the ninety two. Barcelona Olympics. So Lance was on the team as well, wasn't he? Because I remember, I remember Lance because he was everybody was talking about him back then. Um, and I remember you guys, and, and I was I was in that race, but I don't I don't remember you. That's isn't that weird? I didn't realize we rode the Olympics together, mate. <laughs> well, I I always I only did the um, team time trial. Oh, so I, don't know be it then. Okay. I didn't I didn't do the road race. I was actually on the on the side of the road watching. It was in Sitges, right? Just yeah. south of Barcelona. Yeah. Um, so I was on the side. So I was watching you, <laughs> but I didn't, wasn't participating in the race. And we got our asses kicked in the team time trial. I think we were like 15th out of 16 teams. <laughs> uh, it was a 100-kilometer team nuts. time trial event. It sounds like torture on the highways yeah. of Barcelona. It was awful. <laughs> Who, Absolutely what, awful. What was the squad for the team? I mean, it's just worth – people are going to think, what, 100K team time trial? Well, basically – Back in, in the World Championships, um, yeah, it was it was it was a the, the event that the the Olympic discipline had wasn't there was no individual time trial then was there it was a team time trial, correct, correct, and it's just oh, that's just a brutal event and it's just boring to watch. I mean, imagine a hundred kilometers of you know <laughs> riding along at the time forty five k an hour, <laughs> like nobody would want to watch. I'm glad they got rid of that, um, but yeah, it was yeah, but it was a good learning experience. I, I you know made the Olympic team at eighteen years old and. Uh, that was kind of my my eye opening experience where I got to I, leading up to that I'd won pretty much everything I did I was 18 years old and 
you know, very competitive here in the, in the U.S. and you get to the international stage and you get your ass kicked and you think that that's what your life is going to be. So like, okay, I really need to buckle down now and get serious about the sport. So it was, it was, uh, it was an ass kicking, but it was a good uh, eye opening experience. Yeah. And then of course, so that was 92 and then you went on to start your career with, with Motorola in, in, in 1993. And what, what was that first year like riding at that high level? And obviously you're an American team, but it was an American team based you know, solely in, in, in obviously the race in the States, but it was, uh, in all but name, it was a, it was a proper European pro team, wasn't it back then? And it was, it was a big, big deal as well, wasn't it? Oh yeah. It was, um, yeah, that was one of those calls you'll never forget. I got a call from Jim Mockowitz at the end of 1993. It was probably August or so, and I had a really good year as an amateur that year, my only year as an amateur. And he said, George, this is Jim Mockowitz. Uh, would you like to race for Motorola next year? <laughs> Pay you $35,000. <laughs> and I was like, hell yes. Uh, no negotiation, nothing. Yes, please. Raise my hand. He's like, okay, come to Europe in two weeks, and we're going to do uh, – Milan Torino and Piemonte and do as a stagiaire. I'm like, oh, I was like, wow. I was just kind of almost fell over. Um, so I'll never forget that call. And then of course the next year got to, you know, do the full, full year as a pro with Motorola and had guys like Phil Anderson, Steve Bauer, Sean Yates, yeah. um, on the Andy Hampson on the team. And it was just, you know, these legendary guys that I was in awe of. I was all of a sudden racing alongside them. So it was just an incredible experience for me to, for that to be my first year as a pro in Europe, it is the wonderful thing I think about um, about cycling is it is that that sense of community, but also how democratic the sport is and how accessible it is. You can be, we know it happens in other sports, but you know the fact that you can have these posters of these riders. And back in our day, we, we had posters on the walls of well, I, I certainly did of my the riders that I admired. I wanted to be like, even even dress like, for God's sake. I bought all the kit, wanted to look like my favorite riders. And then <laughs> you apply yourself and then you end up like, oh my God. And then there's that moment, isn't there? You get you soon get used to it, but there's that moment when you are working alongside and riding with the people that you ad- admire and aspire to be like. And it's and that moment when you get that call and you sign, you sign that contract on, on the, you go to the first training camp, they are you're wide eyed, aren't you, George? It's 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 quite. I think it's one of the most profoundly important moments in in, in my career. Anyway, and it must. Have, I would imagine it would be for yourself as well. Absolutely. I mean, that first training camp in uh, Castellano, Carducci, in Tuscany, <laughs> um, just you know rolling up. Of course, I had done camps in the national team and all that, but then you know you get to a place where this is actually now your job and. You're surrounded by some of the best riders in the world, and um, yeah, it was just it was just full of excitement. That's for sure. And we know you it was seven, seventeen tours, wasn't it? In the end, um, that you that you rode, and then I mean, over over your your entire career. But what was the was there a moment? Um, in is there a, a moment in? In all of the racing that you've done, God knows how many miles it is. I bet you could probably find it on pro cycling stands. Actually, add up how many miles you actually raced as a pro. But was there? What's the moment that you, that you could take away from it as maybe one of your proudest moments uh, as a rider? And it must be—I guess it must be difficult to pick out because there are so many. Um, what do you think is the moment that you remember the most, even if it wasn't a win for yourself? What, what's the biggest moment do you think that you so often come back to? Um, this is, there's a couple, uh, mm-hmm. obviously. Not as not as sort of prestigious as um, some of the European races, but winning the national the pro national championships in my hometown right here in Greenville. That's all. That was all. I did it two times, and that's really special, just because I'm surrounded by friends and family that 
you know, never really quite understood why, of, of course, my close flam- family understood, but friends that I would hang out with in the winter, like, why is he never around and why does he never do things with us? And then they got to see me racing at a high level and, and winning right in front of them. I thought that was really cool for me and, and just being able to ride five or drive five minutes and be home that night and party after a national championship win. So those were moments that were special in terms of racing in Europe. Um, Helping Cav win Milan San Remo in 2009. Um, yeah. That was like one of the most exciting moments of my career just because nobody thought he could make it over the Poggio. And then all of a sudden, it was the first time in my career where my director is telling me to go down the Poggio with my brakes on. <laughs> just going, Cav is still here. You need to wait for him. So I went down the Poggio, basically soft pedaling while you know the group of 40 or 50 at the time were, were flying past me. But I knew that if... If we connected at the bottom of the Pojo, that he was most likely going to win that race. So it was just, it was just one of the most exhilarating moments in my career, and just to see him, you know, come shoot out of the peloton like a missile, and uh, you know, catch Henrik Halser, which is probably his most disappointing moment of his career, and win Milan San Remo. It was just, it was just one of those moments where I'll never forget. Just actually, just, uh, I mean, Mark's talked about that. Um, that that win a lot and um, because it it's it, it is i think whatever way you look at it it's one of the most thrilling moments in in professional cycling of the last 20 30 40 years in terms of a, a spectacle and how unorthodox a sprint that cav had to do for example it's because it, it there was it looked like the photos they were both away from a break doesn't it it was such a strange sprint um but just just explain what you actually did then. You uh, just break that race apart on the descent of the Poggio in relation to what you did for Cav, because I know that, that Cav you know, waxes lyrical about you, about how important a role that you did play in, in ultimately get, getting that win. So what actually did you do on the on the approach to make sure he was looked after to ultimately react in the way he did? You know, it was a split-second moment. If he'd have waited a moment longer, the race would have been got, uh, gone away from him, wouldn't it? Yeah, so for even, even leading up, Okay, he made it over to Suppressa, but in between the Suppressa and the Poggio, we had a couple guys that their role was just, okay, try to get them in position for the Poggio. And at, at that point, I, I sort of had a, a free card on the Poggio if if there was a breakaway or if something was going on. But it was it was widely known that if Cav made it over the Poggio, then I had to do whatever it took, and I happened to be the only guy left on the team at the top of the Poggio to somehow get him back up to the front. Um, so positioning obviously in that race is everything. So Cav, of course, Cav and I were, were close to the front of the bottom of Pojo and he kind of just glided back towards the Peloton, uh, back towards the end of the Peloton on the way up to the Pojo where I was meant to stay in near the front and make sure that if there was a breakaway going, I'd go, got over the top of the Pojo, probably in the first 10 guys and, uh, Valerio Piva is on the radio saying Cav is still here. So just imagine, I mean, the Pojo is one of the most technical descents in all of pro cycling. Um, And I happen to be a very good descender. So I'm in the position go, okay, well, Cavs here. Now my role is I got to, I got to kind of get out of the way and just sort of gradually go back to where Cav is. So just imagine all these riders sprinting past you, yelling at you, get out of the way. Well, there's not much room (laughs) on the Pojo to get out of the way. I'm just like, okay, just, just don't run into me here. And the whole time I'm thinking, I need to recover as much as possible on this descent. And I hopefully, ideally, we'll connect right at the bottom, which is exactly what happened. We connected right at the bottom. I turned around and saw my wheel and took him straight up to the front. Uh, we came into the last corner with about a kilometer to go and 
probably third or fourth position. And then, and then I end up pulling from probably 800 meters to uh, four, 400 meters, four to 500 meters. And then Heinrich Hauser goes, and then I'm done. I got nothing. And yeah. just Cav shoots out of the Peloton with about 300, 350 minutes to go and just tracks down Hausler like a heat seat missile and, <laughs> and wins, you know, at the time, the biggest race of his career, which was yeah. just super exciting to be part of. Yeah. That, no, it's, I, I love, I love it when. Uh, and and when a lot of people, you know, they see, the, they see that win, but they don't see what happens before that. I mean, we did Terreno Adriatico where, where Cab was basically starving himself in stages of 200 kilometers because he was a little chunky before that. Yep. Um, yep. Having like an express owner an apple. Um, and you know Cab, we all know Cab, we all love him. He gets grumpy when he's hungry. So <laughs> the whole time in Terreno, <laughs> although he still rode a great Terreno, but he still, he needed to lose those extra, you know, what was it, kilo or bit. Those little bits mean everything, and as you know, at the end of the yeah, race. Yeah. Um, so he basically starved himself the whole terrain of Adriatico. Um, and, then, and then he just he just had this confidence. The start yeah. of in the morning in, in Milan, you know, as you know, it's a very early start. It's a 6 a.m. wake-up call. You eat as much as possible. And we're in, the, we're in the bus, and we're getting ready. It's stressful. It's early. People are grumpy. And I see Cab. He's rubbing something on his leg. Like, what, what are you doing? He's like... I'm putting self-tanner on, mate. He's putting self-tanner on before the start of Milan San Remo. I mean, I'm thinking, who does that? Self-tanner so his legs look nice and dark for the start of Milan San Remo. I thought that was the funniest thing ever, and he ended up winning, so I guess it worked for him. <laughs> Flipping heck. That, I didn't know that. That's very, very funny, mate. That's hilarious. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah that, that's that, that's also thrown me off my thread, but that is absolutely hilarious, mate. But no, I, 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 love, I love going back and, and, and hearing – um, and also, you, you hear about race uh, race wins from, from riders that win, but you know there's so many other stories. It's I guess it's become a little bit of a cliche now, but you know, 180 riders in the field. There's 180 stories to to be told, isn't there? You know, very yes, and, sure. and that's what and that's what's so beautiful about it, and that's what I guess you guys um, um, love doing on the move, and 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 how popular, and that's become very very popular. Just briefly before we move on to. We've got a quiz coming up. We've got. I'm making no bones about it. I needed to know. I wanted to confirm where you where you were coming from, uh, where you were born and bred, because we've got a quiz coming up. Okay, mate. I just okay. don't. I don't get too nervous. All right. Very um, bad at quizzes. I'll go ahead you, and uh, shout be that fine. out right it, before we start. <laughs> it's fine. No, get get your excuse him. It's multiple choice, mate. It's multiple choice. But okay. just a quick one. How how, how much um, you clearly enjoying the move, and that has really got you know built over the last couple of years. That must be a lot of fun to do. The move has been great. Um, yeah. You know, we have a Lance and I obviously have a very strong connection. Uh, we have very different views on on, uh, on uh, tactics and racing, so it just right. makes the dynamic of the show uh, super interesting. And and this year, obviously, the Tour de France is one of the most exciting in in many years. So it was very um, fun to be able to to talk about. Um, as you, I'm sure you agree, you were there there on the road. So, um, but it's been it's been a great a great thing for us. So we we're we're always trying to improve the show. Um, we got big plans for next year, and I'm just excited to be part of that. That's cool. There's, there's, uh, and, and again, I, I sometimes can't believe that I'm still, do, still involved in the sport that, that I, I wanted to be involved in as a kid. I wanted to be a professional bike rider. Okay, that was only a small part of my life, but I've done other stuff. But the fact I'm here, um, talking to you, doing stuff on the road, um, I, I can't believe it sometimes. But um, the sport has become. I mean, the sport's always been fascinating, isn't it? The the the, the history of the sport, the, the the romance of the sport, the problems of the sport, the whole thing is just so colourful. But this new era, 
I mean, just before we move on to the quiz, because you, you touched on it there, this, I mean, the tour was fantastic, but this, over the last couple of years, I mean, the, the, the shift has been seismic, hasn't it? Just in terms of these young riders coming through. And also the way the, tat, the, the, way that the races are unfurling now is, it's just fascinating, isn't it? It really is. I mean, they, they race from kilometer zero, full gas to the end. It's like back in our day, you'd have some days where, of course, there was a break that It'd be hard to make the breakaway, but then things would settle down and, you know, you'd have sort of an easy ride, especially races like the in Tour of Spain or any Spanish race for that matter, or Italy. I mean, the Giro, you'd have days where, you know, you'd ride in a 200K stage, you'd ride easy for 150K and then start ramping up for the sprint. Uh, you, yeah. you don't ever see that anymore. Yeah, it, it, it is absolutely fascinating. To the point, I remember, I think, I, I can't remember, I think it was Torino in 2000 and we had... Uh, it's one of those stages. It's a particularly, particularly long stage, and it was a rider's birthday, and it was obviously one of the. I think it was a rider from uh, Quickstep or, or a Mapai, and we rode sixty k, seventy k. Nobody could attack because we were to stop in this guy's village and have some food, <laughs> and the race yeah. actually stopped. The organisers got out. This they flagged us down. So essentially, we had sixty k neutral. And we were eating wow. like ham and stuff and cheese. I remember it was just bizarre, um, but it yeah. was it was there was a hierarchy in place and there was control. I mean, I, I was just I was like, okay, I'm happy to just ride sixty k easy and then we'll go a bit harder later on. But um, but stuff like that doesn't happen anymore. But not um, anymore. I mean, there's, they're even saying the the feed zone is basically a thing of the past. The riders are bringing their food that they're going to need for the whole day and go back to the car for, in, in case they run out or their leader yeah. needs food, but. Um, a lot of times they're not even relying on getting food at the feed zone anymore because it's, it's racing full gas through it. Yeah, it, it is. It's fascinating, especially to watch from the sidelines and see that shift, and also dis- and, and discuss those changes. It, it's um, it's it's an exciting time. It's an exciting time. Now it's going to get even more exciting in a few moments, George, because it's time for the Queen's Quiz. Yo yo, what's up? Y'all ready? Uh-huh. Let's do it. Ta-ta, turn off your phone. That's right. Get your thinking cap on. Yeah, yeah. It's time. What time? Time for the Queen's Quiz. There you go, George. Um, hope you like the jingle. That was awesome. Love it. <laughs> you sound a bit nervous, mate. <laughs> no, I'm good. I'm good. Right, okay. So, you were born and brought up in Queens, uh, New York, Um um, so this is a question based on Queens, okay? It's multiple choice. It's four questions. Um, the bar's been set particularly high uh, by our previous guest, who I won't mention because that podcast hasn't gone out yet. Um, but all I can say is that she got way over maximum points somehow. Anyway, uh, it's multiple choice. If you don't know the answer, George, you can just have a guess. So no issues at all. So are you ready, mate? Yep. Let's do this. So question number one, mate. Um, what climate does Queens and the rest of New York City, for that matter, officially have? And this is under the Koppen climate classification. So it's the it's the scientifically um, uh, agreed standard for global temperatures, okay, and, um, and climate classifications. So is Queens A, humid subtropical? Is it B, humid continental? Is it C, tropical savanna? Or is it D, oceanic? Okay. Humid subtropical. <laughs> humid continental. <laughs> You're just laughing here. Tropical savanna and, and oceanic, yeah, mate. Never been asked. Th- 
I'm going to go yeah. with um, definitely not Savannah. I'm going to go with A. Total guess, though. Okay. Is that your final answer, George? Final answer. Okay. It was close, um, but it's not the right answer. It's actually humid continental. But what I can say, and I'm going to give you half a point for this. Um, give me half a point. Um, it's, <laughs> it's very, very close. Um, I mean, there, there are scientific arguments, given, given global climate change, that it may become humid subtropical. But at the moment, it is still classified as humid continental, but could be uh, humid subtropical. So I'm going to give you half a point. So you're off to a reasonable start. Half a point. There. Half okay, a point. Good. <laughs> okay. Right. Um, question number two. George, what is considered to be the oldest bar in Queens, which was founded way back in 1829? So the oldest bar in Queens, founded in 1829. And this isn't the oldest bar in New York. It's just the oldest bar in Queens. Okay. Um, was it A, the bad old days, B, Fillmore's Tavern, C, Near's Tavern, or D, the Three Diamond Door? Now, what do you reckon? <laughs> have you been uh, in any of these? No, I have not. Just because you I haven't. moved out of Queens when I was 12 years old, so that's going to be a ah, I'm going to go with... Uh, okay. I'm going to go with B. <laughs> You're going to go with Fillmore's Tavern. I tell you what, yes. we're gonna. You know the program "Who Wants to Be a Millionaire"? Yes. I'm gonna. I'm gonna allow you to do a fifty-fifty here, mate. So a I'm 50, gonna. 50. I'm gonna take away Fillmore's Tavern, and I'm gonna take away the bad old days. So it's either Nears Tavern or the Three Diamond Door. Nears Tavern. Correct, Amundo, mate. Well done. Fifty-fifty shot. Fifty-fifty shot. And for a bonus point, which will bring you up to one hundred percent, what famous gangster movie was filmed there? Ooh, yeah. Um, famous from, gangster. Um, yeah, I think the, it was back um, in the eighties or nineties. Godfather. It's not the Godfather, mate. I'll give you one more guess. It's a more contemporary movie, so eighties uh, or nineties. Not the Goodfellas. It is good, fellas. Well done. Oh, okay. Got it. Flipping X. So <laughs> let's top this up. You've actually got um, 100% as we move into the second part of the quiz. So you're doing really well there, mate. Um, but, you, but you have used one lifeline, okay? You have used a lifeline. I have. <laughs> yeah, right. So, okay. Question number three. Um, the official seal of Queens dating back to 1898, so like a coat of arms kind of thing, the official seal of Queens dating back to 1898 features a... A ring around the outside, a crown, then in the centre, two flowers, okay, crossed over each other. What flowers are they? Okay. Are they A, a rose and a daffodil, B, a rose and a tulip, C, a tulip and a daffodil, or D, a rose and a carnation? So, rose daffodil, rose tulip, tulip daffodil, rose carnation. I'm going to go with D for no particular reason, but it just sounded good as it came off of your mouth there. <laughs> Thanks, mate. <laughs> just sound. Did it, do you want to read? Unfortunately, mate, it's not the right answer. It is a oh, rose no. and a tulip. Um, and a little bit of a history lesson. The reason it's a rose and a tulip is, is in deference to the Dutch and English settlers. So a tulip yeah. for the Dutch settlers back in the day uh, when New York was indeed founded and the English as well. Um, a rose is represented. So there you go. Another little bit of a lesson there, mate. So, but you're still doing okay. You've still got 75% right. And the final question, you'll be pleased to know and relieved that the quiz is wrapping up. Um, it's a Spider-Man question. 
Okay. Now, Spider-Man, whether you believe he's real or not, lives in Queens with his Aunt May. Okay. On what road, street, does Spider-Man live with his Aunt May? And it is an act, although although Spider-Man doesn't exist, it's a real street and a real house. Um, Which road? Is it A, 69th Road, B, 70th Avenue, C, Sibylla Street, or D, Metropolitan Avenue? What do you reckon? I'm going to go with D. You're going to go with D? Metropolitan Avenue. It's incorrect, mate. It is a 69th ah, road. Oh, no. Um, so let's so tot up the scores. I think in the end, um, you got 50%. I think it's time for a round of applause from our, from our studio audience. Well done. So, George, um, not a bad score. I think that's about halfway down the leaderboard if we had one. I can't remember them off the top of my head. So a solid a solid score there. And I think... So if I was my kids, I'd lose my phone for a week. I should have given them my phone for a week. And if they came home oh, with a 50% God. from school, no phone oh, for a week. <laughs> oh, blimey, mate. I mean, um, yeah. I mean, if, if you want to do that self-imposed um, you know, punishment, <laughs> then then go for it, mate. Go for it. Actually, talk, talking of your kids... Um, Enzo recently, I, I noticed, has become American champion. American yes. champion. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he, um, to talk to him about that, that must have been an exceptionally proud moment for you, mate. It was. Um, we you know, we worked. I don't let him do any intervals since he's only 14 years old. I know that uh, that might be contrary to a lot of people's way of method of training, but I just want him to learn how to ride a bike and have fun and Go hard. His training group on the weekends is myself, Bobby Julik, and Christian Vandeville. So he's got a pretty good, right. decent training group. Wow! Um, but before before nationals, we did some intervals, and um, you know, for like the month leading up to it, and he got second place in the time trial, which was the discipline that we worked on the least. Um, and he lost by like two seconds. He didn't. He had a. I know this is this is a bit much for a fourteen year old kid, but he had an aero road bike that I wanted him to ride, but he didn't like riding it, and I'm 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 convinced he would have won if he wrote it <laughs> right. but i let him make his own choices and i did tell him after he got second that that was the discipline that we worked on the least and that if it was if that was his worst result of the week that um you know things were going to go really well and of course he ended up winning the road race in a really fun uh, sprint at the end and then the criterium he rode away solo um so he's he's rode in criterium national champion which is pretty pretty awesome to see yeah, because I was looking, um, I was just stalking you on Instagram, uh, like I do generally with guests, um, just before I go on the pod. Obviously, I know a lot about you. I thought, oh, what's been going on lately? And I noticed your your lad had a national champs jersey, and I thought, nobody, uh, his, his lad wouldn't be just cruising around with a national champs jersey on if he wasn't national champ. And then and then I saw that he'd won. I mean, that, that it's fantastic, but the way you're protecting him as best you can because there's so much open source information out there about training and stuff now and it would be very easy for a kid to dip into it and we know how brutal training is um and the level that there is the level the sport is at now quite clearly and you could quite easily um the fun could be sucked out of cycling quite early and and you're clearly very very mindful of that aren't you absolutely um that was the one thing that at least the that i missed the least is hitting the set button on my uh, power meter and timing myself and uh, doing, you know, set, set amount of Watts. Um, just after a while, that becomes very mentally challenging. I still love to ride my bike, but I never do intervals anymore. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I don't want him to start doing that too early, although it's, it's coming. He'll have to do it sooner or later, but sure. I think uh, he's on a good path right now. And he, has he, has he said those words, dad, I want to be a pro cyclist yet? 
Oh yeah. He said that. He actually asked me for a power meter the other day. I'm like, nope, can't have one. <laughs> Cause I mean, okay. We're going to be wrapping up soon, but I just wanted to touch on that. And also all the best to your lad as well. It's, it's magnificent. And, and just by looking at the, just those still images of what I've seen, actually there's a little bit of video on there that I've watched, but he just looks like he's having a blast mate, doesn't he? I mean, and, and that's the thing. And, and this is a, a theme I come back to pretty much with every single guest on the pod is, that riding is brutal, it's hard, but fundamentally it's fun, isn't it? And if you can see that, as long as he keeps that sparkle in his eye, it's going to be fine, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, it's fun. For him right now, it's fun. It's social. He's got a couple of friends that are near his age that ride. And, um, you know, that's what it's all about right now is just trying to keep it as fun as possible. And we know how hard it is, you know, once you're racing. So if he can have fun while doing it and, and really enjoy and 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 learn to love it i think that's that's the, the the right way to do it fantastic and uh, i mean just just to wrap things up i know your family since and your brother was heavily involved um in the sport your 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 i, I believe your your uncle and your aunt helped run the factory for hincapi clothing in, in Colombia. you've got this hotel just give us a little bit of a sense about what's going on in your, in your life now clearly you've got you, you're a busy guy you've got the move but you've You've got you're spinning a lot of very very cool plates with the sound of it. So just give us a rundown of what your life looks like now. Well, it's just kind of all over the place. Um, <laughs> you know, I have, I, it's, it is. I mean, as a pro cyclist, you kind of you wake up and you know exactly what you need to do that day, um, and you know exactly where you're going. But now my life is kind of just just it's all over the place. Whether it's focusing on um, the move, uh, which I do all of course all of July and during the World Cups. Um, or traveling around for events. Um, in fact, I'm leaving tomorrow for Spain. We have a Lance and I have a camp in Mallorca, Spain. I'll be there for a whole week. Um, and then after that, our big focus is the Grand Fundo. We have a, our 11th year of doing the Grand Fundo here in Greenville, which will have almost 3,000 people participating. And um, we should have some fun guests coming along as well. I think Wiggins is coming. Um, Brilliant. A couple other. Uh, Bob Youngles is coming. So we're going to have some great personalities there. I'm trying to convince a couple of my friends to come. Um, so that's kind of our next big focus for the month of October. Um, then of course, after that, I have some, some rides that I'm doing as well in other parts of the country. Um, so it's just nothing really, um, standard. I don't have a set routine. Um, but it's always, it's always something and it keeps me busy enough. So I'm, I'm appreciative of that. That's wonderful, mate. That's wonderful. And, and finally, what you have you got any plans for your 50th mate man all of my friends are asking me that <laughs> so, I, I don't know sorry I, I it's a weird i'm sorry it's a know. weird way to end the podcast mate but i've i've done that a couple of years ago and i was like what am i going to do anyway we had a nice party but it was great fun but i didn't have a party did you stay home for the party or what did you do um we we hired a club in london um oh nice we had, yeah we had a little club in soho that my wife's a member of we hired that and we had everybody from from from, from the present and the past there and it was it was I wouldn't call it wild, but it was energetic and it was a lot of fun. My dad was there as well. It was just really special. Um, and uh, so, yeah, what, what are your, what, what do you reckon you want to do? Or are you trying to just like not forget about it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it's definitely the question I've been asked a lot lately. And my 40th, we had a big party at, at Hotel Domestique and that was super fun. Um, but I, I, yeah, I don't know, for the 50th, I'm leaning on some, doing something in Medellin, Colombia, just because of ah, you know, a lot okay. of family there and yeah. it'd be a sort of a unique spot to go. But I think logistically, we'll see. I might need some help with that. My brother's a really good planner, so I might lean on him for that. But 
nothing set in stone at the moment. Great stuff, mate. Well, well, George, it's, it's you know it's it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. It's been a, a while since I so last spoke, and it was three or four years ago since we had a since we met up in uh, in the hills yeah, just outside in New York. New York. Yeah, yep. it, it was that was great. That was a lot of a lot of fun. Um, and it's been a pleasure. I thank you for being so so open and so generous with your time. Um, and uh, look after yourself, mate. All right, Matt. Appreciate it. That was great. Enjoyed it. Amazing stuff. Thanks very much indeed, George, for taking the time to talk to me on the podcast. And I hope you continue to enjoy what seems to be a very busy second career. Lots going on there. Uh, All the best to you. And also thanks to Mark from the Isle of Man for sending his question in as well. Thanks to Perry Apgwineth for the podcast theme tune. And thanks to you as ever, folks, for listening. Don't forget to like, follow and rate the pod and maybe give it a little review if you feel like it. And why not recommend it to anyone who might be thinking about bringing an abandoned dog home to their father who forbids the action, but you know deep in your heart that he'll click with the dog and they'll end up best pals. Now, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, please do. Our email address is podcast at sigmasports.com or you can leave a message or a voice note on our WhatsApp phone, um, just like Mark from the Isle of Man did, which is plus four four seven 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 eight three two three two six eight. And finally, a massive thanks again to George for joining us on the podcast today. And we wish him and his family all the very best. Cheers all, stay safe and goodbye.